1: Welcome to LawPod. I am Lauren Dempster. I'm a lecturer in the School of Law at Queen's University, Belfast. The episode that we are recording today is first in a mini-series which explores a recently published edited collection called Beyond Transitional Justice, Transformative Justice and the State of the Field or Non-Field. The collection is published uh, by Routledge. It was published earlier this year and today we're joined by the collection's editor, Dr. Matthew Evans. I just want to outline for our listeners that In this episode, Matt's going to talk in in sort of general terms about the collection as a whole. And then in subsequent episodes in the mini-series, we're going to delve into a few of the individual chapters in depth to really give you a a sense of of the collection overall. To begin with, Matt, could you just introduce yourself for us?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Hi, Um, I'm Matthew Evan. And I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Law, Politics and Sociology at the University of Sussex and visiting researcher at the Department of Political Studies at the University of the Witwatersrand Johannesburg. And I'm the editor of this collection, Beyond Transitional Justice.
1: Thank you, Matt. To start us off, could you tell us a little bit about the collection, introduce what it's about and who's involved?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the collection really started life as a roundtable Um, which got cancelled at a conference that was due to happen in 2020, right at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the intention with that, and then as a result, the intention with the book was to bring together scholars at different career stages who are working on transitional justice or related areas to think about and discuss where the Field, if it is indeed a field, um, is now where it might be headed, what the dilemmas or tensions might be, whether it ought to be questioned or replaced with other concepts or ideas like transformative justice. So, in terms of the people involved, there's a number of contributors who are earlier career and some other ones who are much more established. So, in addition to myself, There is yourself and Rachel who who's written a chapter. There's Maya Davidovich, who is a fairly early career scholar who's now at Cardiff University and completed a PhD at Durham University. There's Dustin Sharp, who's quite well established. It's based at the University of San Diego. There's Joanna Quinn, who is a professor at Western University in Canada. There's Dara McGill, who is also a relatively early career scholar based at Pembroke College, Oxford at the moment. And Eric Hoddy, who again is quite an early career scholar who's currently based at London University, although he's soon to be taking up a position at York University, I believe. And then the final chapter, which is sort of a conclusion, is by Christine Bell, who's very well established and very well known in transitional justice and related areas. And Whose article from 2009 about transitional justice, interdisciplinarity, and in the state of the field or non field really inspired me to bring people together and reflect on how things were looking now, which at the time was 10 years after that article had been published. Although now I'm a little over that now that the book has come out. And the idea was to really get different perspectives of what transitional justice is at the moment, what it could be, what the limitations are, what the alternatives might be, and to get a different set of positions and ideas about how this area of research and also practice to some degree might be developed or where it might be heading in the future.
1: Thanks, Matt. It's a great group of people, so I'm delighted to be included in the in the collection in my chapter with Rachel. You mentioned that you used Christine Bell's 2009 International Journal of Transitional Justice piece as a sort of starting point or jumping off point for the book. Can you say a little bit more about about that piece and, and why it was your sort of inspiration for the for the collection?
0: Yeah, I think it came to my mind because I had reread that piece and I cited it in an article I was writing, and I think I cite it quite often if you look through my work and if you look in the bibliographies, you'll you'll see it crop up. And they kind of gave me this thought that it's it's something of a cornerstone of what transitional justice research and what transitional justice scholarship is, or at least setting out some of the dilemmas and the questions that that kind of scholarship engage with, particularly in terms of the question of fieldhood. So, whether transitional justice is or ought to be considered a a coherent field in itself, or whether it is something within law as a discipline, or within any other discipline, or whether it is inherently and necessarily interdisciplinary. And these are questions that I've been engaging with in terms of uh, thoughts about interdisciplinarity and indeed postdisciplinarity, which I think I'll probably talk a bit more about when we discuss my chapter to engage with those concepts a bit more. And having kind of used that article so much and having brought it again into my world when I was writing something 10 years after it had been published, I had the thought that it would be interesting to see whether the same issues are still present or whether there's new issues or whether the dilemmas that have been raised in that piece have been resolved, or at least to see what different ways they've been responded to after a period of time where transitional justice as an area of scholarship is a little more established. The journal that it was published in, of course, was quite new at the time and now well over a decade of publishing. And there are a number of book series and uh, sometimes some other journals which have Transitional Justice in name. So it's certainly an area of scholarship that has established itself, if not as a field, then as a a non-field that has some notion of uh, having a core content or, or at least some overlapping content that people understand within academia and maybe in some areas of practice as well. There are NGOs that work on transitional justice. That has been for a long time, but increasingly it's an area that's both scholarship and practice. So I wanted to see where we are now, 10 years plus after that uh, reflection that Christine Bell put forward. And um, I'm very pleased that she agreed to uh, be part of the collection as well and to give her own reflections on where we are now and indeed on the thoughts that other scholars, including several fairly early career scholars, have on where we are now, where we might be going.
1: So I think, yeah, it's definitely timely, and I think I don't know if this just is just a sort of symptom or a side effect of actually going back to conferences again, but it does feel like a time of sort of self reflection for the fields, and I, I think the collection is is a timely one. And as you say, it's great to have uh, Christine Bell's contribution within it. I wanted to move on to transformative justice, so I guess for me as a concept, I would perhaps be a little bit cynical about transformative justice in terms of how it sits in relation to transitional justice and whether or not it's something that perhaps comes from more from those who have perhaps a narrower understanding of transitional justice than I do. So I know you've published on transformative justice elsewhere, and obviously it's it's a key aspect of the collection. So can you just tell me a bit more just in your own thoughts and, and sort of from your own research like what is transformative justice for you and how does it sit sort of alongside or separate to transitional justice?
0: So in my view transformative justice in terms of post-conflict or post-authoritarian or in terms of responding to historic injustice of some sort ought to be conceived as distinct from transitional justice as parallel and at times overlapping, but not a variety of or contained within transitional justice. Now, I think I may be in the minority when it comes to people who write about and think about transformative justice in this regard when I say that. And I think if you look in the chapters in the collection which engage with transformative justice they don 't all use exactly the same understanding, which was deliberate in in, in my um, planning of of the collection i didn 't want to put forward a single view, um, that is uncontested I want to bring the contestation to to the surface for me, I would say that transformative justice is particularly distinct from transitional justice in its concern for addressing structural violence as well as direct interpersonal violence, and for taking a longer-term view of what a transition or a transformation uh, period might be out of a period of conflict or whatever injustice this notion is seeking to respond to. And I think particularly distinct in terms of not being well linked to a particular set of tools and interventions. So whilst I accept that transitional justice doesn't necessarily just mean tools like truce commissions or trials or reparations programs, transitional justice does tend to use Those tools and a few other ones, and to be concerned with certain kinds of injustices, particularly those that are related to interpersonal violence. So, often, if you look at these kinds of mechanisms, they are addressing deliberately only um, things like in the South African Transitional Justice Mechanism, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, what they called gross violations of human rights, which meant. Only certain gross violations of civil and political rights to do with bodily integrity, like killings, torture, disappearances. And if we're trying to define transitional justice as some kind of a field or non field, for me, it tends to, I tend to take the view that it only really makes sense if key elements really are a focus on. Relatively short term transitions, years, maybe to sort of low decades, um, but the kind of timescales that are given to mechanisms like truth and reconciliation commissions, or the lifespan of trials, or the period that it takes to set up a new government, perhaps a sort of, sort of liberal democratic model frequently is the sort of idea, at least in the older notions of what transitional justice might be, change from some kind of authoritarian rule to some kind of liberal democratic system. system. And going beyond that and and looking deeper into the past or further into the future or to injustices which are more societal, less individual, maybe can't be addressed or can't be fully addressed by mechanisms like trials, particularly these these legal and quasi-legal mechanisms like trials and truth commissions strikes me as having to be outside of the concept of transitional justice really. Other people disagree and would suggest some of this can all be part of uh, transitional justice, but I'm not convinced by those arguments, I suppose. I think m- maybe I should say that some of what I've written about is, is in a way not, not, not particularly triumphalist about transformative justice. I've written a, um, in a chapter that was in the previous edited collection that I um, published in 2019 about possibilities for transformative justice. And I suggested that, that at least for the time being, it's most useful as an analytical framework for understanding practices that are going on in a post-transitional context. I was focusing on South Africa as much of my words. And to think about whether a particular policy or practice is contributing towards transformative justice as an idea or not, rather than it being an identifiable program that governments or civil society actors or NGOs or the other kinds of bodies we might expect to intervene in some way in the wake of conflicts, authoritarianism, atrocities are actually taking on board as a as an over framework for practice or a particular set of policies that are being pursued. That might change perhaps in the future, but that was my kind of assessment a few years ago. There uh, where it's perhaps most useful. That's also partly the motivation for this collection to see where we are now, a few years later. And how that concept's been used, applied, and criticized, responded to by other people particularly working in other contexts as well, looking at different case studies and thinking about whether it's useful for their work or could be useful for the context in which they apply their work.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely an interesting aspect of the the collection that you can see the different ways in which transformative justice or the notion of transformation manifests. And I mean, I would probably fit into the, the latter group of people that you mentioned who does think that a, a lot of what transformative justice looks at could be considered from a transitional justice perspective but at the same time you know getting into i think as you say as, as an analytical tool as a way of thinking differently or even just helping see that sort of the gaps in transitional justice i do i do think it's really useful literature and i think you know it's becoming more and more clear like the need to look at you know socioeconomic rights and harms that are perhaps longer in duration I'll put the link actually to to some of your your other work, Matt, in our in our show notes. I use some of your transformative justice work with with my own students, so um, I'll, I'll include it for our listeners. To come back then to the collection overall, I've really enjoyed having a copy. I, I'm definitely going to draw on some of the chapters in in my own work. What are your thoughts on what contribution this this collection makes to the transitional justice scholarship? I mean, I know you've said a little bit already about sort of the, the time we're at as in terms of thinking about the field, but what do you think this this contribution brings?
0: On one level, the the answer might be a, a short one that, that it gives a kind sort of snapshot of where where we are, or an element of where we are. Of course, you know, it, it doesn't contain every scholar, every thought, every every notion, and new development. But it does give a sense, I think, of what some new developments are, what some established positions are in the scholarship, and give some indication of where that might go in the future. So to give a couple of examples, I think that the idea that economic rights issues, structural violence, more society level harms ought to be addressed somehow. In the kinds of context that transitional justice tends to look at, I think is now fairly well established, and that is quite clear in the in the collection. Whether it's from a chapter like mine, which partly advocates transformative justice of of a particular kind of a, of a, of a way defined, how I can define it, or uh, like Eric Hoddies, who, who uh, certainly is um, an advocate of transformative justice, somewhat similarly defined, might <laughs> disagree on the exact points of certain things. Uh, But it's also evident in, say, Dustin Sharp's um, piece. And Dustin, I think, is much more sceptical of expansive notions of uh, transformation and transformative justice, at least in terms of the practicalities of how one might go about doing that rather than having uh, raised expectations coupled with uh, continued failure, uh, to paraphrase. Lars Waldorf, who Sharp um, also draws on, who uh, I think has made important contributions to this uh, literature as someone who's quite critical of the kind of transformative justice notion, but has certainly helped to develop the scholarship around transitional justice and transformative justice and what it can, cannot do, or should, and should not do in practice and in, in. Conceptualizing ideas, and also I think another great example of where the field is and where it might go is, uh, is your chapter with with Rachel. So these um, notions of addressing gaps in established transitional justice practice has I think been uh, increasingly mainstreamed, even if the specific, specific gaps are still uh, quite new, um, in terms of the, the the work that addresses them. So I think that the achievement of the collection, where it maybe fits in the literature, is to say, in quite a contemporary sense, this is what the debates are, some of them anyway, this is what various different scholars think about those debates. Here are some ideas about where we might go in the future. And I deliberately wanted them to be quite short chapters to allow that to be something that's is uh, somewhat, uh, not necessarily tentative, but, but certainly a, a preliminary element, a preliminary thought on this is what's happening now, this is where things could go in the future, and uh, provoke responses in some ways, and to provoke thoughts in the minds of the contributors, <laughs> and perhaps in the minds of students if the book is uh, included on any courses, which I hope it will be, I'm probably going to use if not the whole book, then at least some of the chapters in my own teaching as a way in to, in relatively short form, say, here are some new ideas reflecting on a history of existing scholarship and practice. Here's where we might be going in the future. And to sort of, to some degree, draw a line and move on in terms of, well, this is where we are now. So if we're talking about what transitional justice does or can do or can't do, we don't have to always only go back to the material that was coming out in the 1990s or the early 2000s, much of which I criticise, but a lot has happened since then. So what are, what are we talking about when we talk about transitional justice? And if we talk about it as a field, or as a discipline or something that they have used, and what does it contain? And What are the controversies and the debates within that? And I think it contains that quite well and highlights key developments that have taken place. This is what seems widely accepted about the practice of transitional justice now, about the gaps within that, about rival concepts or intertwining concepts like transformative justice, about expansion into areas like environmental harms, as well as those who caution against expansion. This is what's going on. And I think it invites a response. And that was deliberate. I didn't want it to be a a book that presents the last word or even a single argument that starts from from uh, the beginning and runs to the end with a position put out. Each of the chapters might do that, but they don't all come to the same conclusions. They don't all come from the same position. I wanted to reflect that variety and diversity within scholarship from from different angles as well, from different disciplinary angles, from different areas of focus geographically, and in terms of the issues that are engaged with. So environmental harms, settler colonialism, armed conflicts, and others, which raise different questions.
1: Thank you, Matt. My final question, that I guess, takes us away from the conceptual side of things, to sort of the mechanics of, of pulling an edited collection together. Uh, as you mentioned, this is not your first rodeo. You have edited at least one other <laughs> collection before. Um, I guess like for any of our listeners here who may be thinking about doing an edited collection or might at some point be, be invited to do it, could you just reflect a bit on the experience of pulling it together, and would you have any sort of tips or advice for anyone who's thinking about, about leading an edited collection?
0: Yeah, so uh, yeah, as you mentioned, this is this is my my second edited collection. So I learned a lot from from the first one, um, and I learned a lot from the second one as well. They weren't they weren't exactly the same uh, in the in the process. I think my experience has mainly been quite good. Um, I have heard some horror stories about edited collections, and, uh, and some people have even said, "Don't do it; it's not worth your time." That wasn't my experience. I mainly quite enjoyed it, and I think that edited collections can be a useful thing to exist. <laughs> I, you know, I use edited collections quite a lot in my in my own work, and I think it can be useful to be involved in them, in part because of the engagement with the other contributors, especially as editor. So I read. You know, several drafts of all of the chapters. So I was quite embedded in the discussions that were going on, which affects my own thinking and is useful to me as a, a somewhat selfish uh, position, I suppose. I get to read this new research that's not yet published and comment on it and uh, see where people are going with it and, and to shape it in some ways when I add my own comments and, and sort of review notes to those which I think is is quite an exciting thing to be involved in. In terms of things like advice, I think one of the main ones is to assume it's going to take longer than you thought it was going to take. If you look over my emails, I'll have sent you um, and other contributors about when things might be done. Even though I had this in my mind, things still took longer than than I was originally hoping. So I think this took pretty much two years from the time that the original roundtable was supposed to happen to the time that the book actually came out in print, having shifted from saying, we'll do a round table and maybe publish something afterwards to let's publish something instead of a round table. I think I'd originally hoped it to be inside one year. Didn't happen. Two years, I think is actually still relatively fast for edited collections. It's not. Uh, it's certainly not slow. So I think that's the main thing to keep in mind, that Deadlines are likely to get pushed back. This is both because of things like publishers um reviewing chapters and taking a while to get back and offer contracts and these sorts of things. Mm. And also getting contributions from people, um, which is understandable. People have their own lives. They often they their academics, which I think everybody contributing to this collection is is a university-based academic, so they often have classes to teach, they have other publications that they're working on. So if you say, please can you send me a, a draft chapter in two months' time, there's a very good chance that at least some people will say, I'm not going to make that deadline. Maybe give me another month. And then there's also a pretty good chance that after that month, there'll need to be another extension as well. Just as an example, I mean, I think three, four months would be quite quick. So I think that's probably the main piece of advice. But I'd say it, it at least can be worth persevering. I think it was a worthwhile experience for for me, and hopefully for the contributors as well. I think I learned a lot about well, about editing. I mean, it's like, it's such, editing with a sort of small e, I suppose, about about reading work and thinking about how it can be made to be clearer, about making things consistent with referencing styles within a chapter, for example, with making links between. Different chapters, in terms of writing an introduction and thinking how what might appear to be a disparate group of scholars, and a disparate group of issues can be thematically understood and then arranged into the uh, collection. I've definitely found it interesting and helpful to think about arranging the chapters into thematic groups and to think about what the issues were that re emerged in those chapters. And I think that's definitely a, a useful thing to do. So I suppose it's advice. In as much as it is advice, it's that reading and thinking is good <laughs> and, and uh, you can get something out of it regardless of the fact that it might take longer than you initially hoped and inevitably also involves some uh, frantic last minute working to meet publishers' ultimate deadlines with things like checking proofs that usually has to be done very fast. <laughs> so it's a sort of a slow process that suddenly accelerates uh, over the course of the two years. It was Bit by bit, getting drafts of chapters, sending back my comments, thinking about things, sending off proposal to the publisher, and then finally, when the deadline is approaching, week, two weeks um, of intense work, checking proofs, making notes for the publishers about what the index ought to include and those sorts of things. But overall, I think it's an enjoyable experience and is helpful. To, to me as editor for my understanding of, of the scholarship that I'm engaged in. And I think, um, and that's one of the main reasons I'd maybe recommend that people consider editing a, a collection. So I think you get more out of it than merely sending off an article, say. And it is also very different to writing your own single authored uh, book, which I've published one, um, authored book, because you get more views of other people. So regardless of whether it might seem like disproportionate work for two short chapters that are actually my publications that might be referable. I thought that, that was anything close to my concern with this book. I think I got a lot out of it. So I think it's worth considering. It might not be for everybody, but it's definitely worth considering. I think you do get more out of it than just a lot of work, which I think sometimes people say that it's a lot of work, and it's not worth it. and I I think it's a lot of work, but maybe it is worth it. Thank you,
1: Matt. It's, it's- valuable to hear like, that your reflections are, are so positive uh, like you i have heard dark tales about doing edited collections so it's, it's good to know that, that you feel like the, the work is worthwhile I'll bring this episode to a close Matt for purposes of time I want to thank you for joining us Matt's going to join us in a later episode to talk about his own individual chapter in the collection so we'll be joined by Matt again I'll put the link to the Edited Collection and some of the other publications that we've discussed or touched on today in the show notes, so any of our listeners who want to you can look those up. But yeah, thank you, Matt, for joining us. Thank you.